go hard enough on the issue or you, or you bowed to the, to the cultural pressure here in this area. And so there's landmines everywhere in today's text. And I say that not to say like that, you know, that you're up here, I'm up here trying, trying to offend. I never attempt to offend my job. And every, every person who preaches or teaches the Bible's job is to uh, faithfully communicate what the text is trying to say. And so I want to do my best to faithfully communicate what the text is trying to say and not inevitably um, will raise or cause some offenses. So, um, you know, there's the, the easy way is that uh, on the side, there's the, that little, I don't know what that little box is. It puts numbers up for when children's are, children are like, you need mom or dad. So oftentimes when people are leaving, it's because their mom, their kid's acting bad, but they leave like right at the, the point and then they come up and apologize because the whole church looks at them like, oh, they got offended, they're leaving. It's already happened at every service. Uh, I don't know if it was their kids or they left because of the offense, but all I'm saying, if it's your kids or it's an actual offense today, you can always just walk out gracefully and everyone else can just say in your head, oh, it's, it's, they got, must have a bratty kid. Um, <laughs> Offense number one. There you go. All right. Um, it needed to be said. No one else has told you. Your kid's out of line. All right. So we're in a series going through First Peter. It's entitled Sojourners and Exiles. And before we get into the actual text for today, last week we read this verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This verse has what we'll call an eschatological bent. Eschatology is a big fancy word that means the study of the end times. And this verse may not sound like it's talking about the end times, but it is. It's saying you live in the present in such a way that your behavior hopefully influences people so that they then in turn become Christians so that on the final day they glorify God. Rather than face judgment, they face Christ and they glorify him. So last week the passage was set up with this verse and then Peter goes on to talk about different relationships and different roles and functions that people have in society. And so he addressed citizens and how we ought to be submissive to government officials, to the emperor, to ruling authorities, so that they might in turn glorify Christ. He talked about the first century um, dynamic, unfortunate dynamic of slavery. And then this week, he's going to talk about marriage. Now, here we go. You're always like, oh, man. Oh, and one other thing. Today, some of you will be like, this is all no-brainer. There's nothing about this is offensive. This is like obvious, but then you need to know that there's some people who this is, it's making their skin boil. See, look, he's already leaving. I'm pointing you out because I know you. <laughs> Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right. So first off, America, in general, people don't, but Americans in particular, we don't like the word submission or be submissive, so it's already kind of bad. And then it's taking upon a certain target audience, namely wives. So first, you have to establish what type of relationship is this. Obviously, it's marriage, but it's, it's more than that. We're talking about a Christian woman who's married to a non-Christian man. 
and she is supposed to live in such a way that he can be converted or brought to the Lord because of her actions. Now, one of the things that gives this historical context is something called household codes. In the, Greco- in the Greco-Roman world, household codes were quite household codes were quite common. That was a little twister. And what household codes did is they communicated a social structure and order to the household. And this is because the Roman world knew something. They believed that the fundamental building block of the entire nation and culture and empire was the single unit of the family. In other words, if the family gets disrupted, the empire falls. And so they had strict rules, household codes, to bring social order so that the basic social fabric would be kept intact and thus create a healthy nation, culture, empire. Now, in the household codes, they all universally say the same thing Peter starts off with. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. That's nothing new. That's across the board. Whether we like it or not, agree with it or not, it's universal. The household codes of the Greco-Roman world all stated wives ought to be submissive to your husband, husbands. There's something else. Because Peter is simultaneously going to affirm and subvert the household codes. So he affirms it by starting off with this idea of submission. But he's also going to do something where he comes inside of that household code and begins to subvert it, much like we talked about last week with the institution of slavery. We know according to Plutarch, first century historian, biographer, essayist, that not only were wives supposed to be submissive to their husbands, there was two other components. Plutarch tells us that it was assumed that a wife would worship the gods of her husband. So whatever gods or goddesses the husband worshipped in the pagan culture and society, it was the role of the wife to worship those same gods. Secondly, the wife was not to have independent friends. That doesn't mean the, the women weren't allowed to have friends. They had plenty of friends. But they were supposed to be you know, mutual friends with the husband. You know how this works? If, if, if you're married, you, ha- you have some friends that like, are both hu- you and your husband's friend but then you got some friends that he don't like, you know what I mean, and vice versa. Your husband has some friends. Man, when you go out with Bubba, you just do stupid things. Man, I don't like Bubba. (laughs) So the woman was supposed to have mutual friends, not independent friends, and she was not supposed to be able to worship her own gods and goddesses. So Peter is assuming and subverting and taking this household code and saying what he says. So he affirms the first part. And there's a reason for it, we'll get to in a second. But two, he also gives space for the woman to worship her own God, to have her own religion. He gives space for the woman to independently make a decision about faith and religion. Secondly, by implication, if she's going to go to church and be a Christian, that means she has friends that are independent of the husband. Because the pagan husband certainly isn't going to be friends with the crazy Christian friends of his, of his wife. It's not going to happen. Christi- Christianity is a minority right now. Very few c- Christians in the empire. They're going to be kind of weird people. So Peter's giving space for the woman to independently decide her faith and religion and start to have friendships independent of the husband. But he also knows something else. He knows that Rome, Greco-Roman culture believed, again, 
that the fundamental building block to the culture, nation, empire was the order of the household. And so when the husband goes down to burn incense to Athena, one of his goddesses, and the wife does not go with him, that's going to look bad and shame the man. Where, where, where's your wife? You can't keep your household in order? And it doesn't just shame the husband. It actually, depending upon the region, could be socioeconomic problems. You know, the employer goes, oh, everyone's making fun of this guy. Can't keep his household in order. I don't, I don't know if I want to continue employing him. And so there's socioeconomic consequences, there's social consequences, there's the shaming factor. So when the husband goes to, fest, to celebrate the festival of Dionysus and the wife's not there because she only worships one God, there's the talk. Oh, so-and-so's here. He's got the crazy wife, worships the crucified Jewish guy. And so what Peter is doing is he's saying, women, when you are in a relationship, in this type of relationship with an unbelieving man, you are to do your best to conduct yourself in a manner that would ultimately win this person over for Christ. And this has been the theme for the whole section with the governors, with the pagans, with any type of relationship. It's you conduct yourself in a way that ultimately can lead to someone's salvation. And this is simultaneously affirming and subverting these types of things. Now, I, I got to kind of come back and hit this word with submit, because depending upon where you're at in life, depending upon who you're married to, everyone just heard that passage differently. There are some of you who have great marriages, and when you think about your husband, if you're a wife, and you think about him, it's like, when the Bible says, respect your husband, like, there's no offense taken. It's like, of course I want to respect my husband. I love my wife. But then there's some of you, and it could be maybe because of cultural upbringing, it could be because of past pain, or it could be because of the current relationship you're in. You, have a heart, you don't want to respect your husband. In fact, he's probably not worthy of respect. Or maybe some of you have been married to Christian men who don't imitate Christ but love to quote the Bible passages that sound like this. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not leading like Christ, you're not acting like Christ, but you bring out the submit woman passages. Submit, respect. You're going to see in a moment it gets worse because he says to call your husband Lord. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but there's pain. You're in a relationship of abuse or your husband abused you. And so people have used these passages in ill manner. This is, this is the thing. Previous, the, the last week it talked about slavery. The Bible was used both to uphold and abolish slavery. So you've got to get to the, what is the text communicating? You can always take a Bible verse out of context. What is the text communicating? And today we're talking about a, a, a situation in which Peter wants the women who are married to unbelieving men to conduct themselves to the best of their ability and good conscience that they would ultimately win their husbands over to the Lord. He goes on, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting of gold jewelry, 
putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is God, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter's talking about external standards of beauty. And this in this culture was something that signified something externally beautiful or attractive, extravagant braiding of hair, gold jewelry, and clothing. Every culture has different ways in which you could present yourself that communicate things. It's like nonverbal communication that communicates something about yourself. And you can do it with the way you, you do your hair, the way you look, the way you dress. And every culture is different. So it's not like there's a universal standard across time. Especially with beauty. Like if you look at the literature and the art throughout history, through time and culture, you're not going to see like one standard of beauty. Especially when it comes to men, it's, you see wide variation. The closest thing you have to a universal standard of beauty or aesthetic of the masculine is usually, if you look at the art, about 5'7", 5'8", a little thick, kind of long, chaotic hair. Um, and that's sort of the kind of universe, the closest thing you get to a universal standard across the board. But it changes. Changes. So... What, what, People laughing, I don't know, trying to, <laughs> talking about exegeting the Bible right here. So uh, you have, you, you have the, these things, extravagant braiding of hair and gold jewelry. This was a way in this culture to draw attention to yourself in a sensual or sexual way. And so what Peter is saying, and especially saying this to a married woman, do not adorn yourself with external beauty that is going to be sensual or sexual in a way that communicates something that a married woman ought not to do. And men do this too. They just typically do it in different ways than their dress, at least in, in our culture and in many cultures. But for women, especially kind of the big extravagant braiding of hair in this culture was a big cue like, you know, look at me, I'm open. Even though I'm married, I'm, I'm trying to put myself out there. Peter doesn't bash physical beauty or women wanting to look beautiful. The Bible has a lot to say about physical beauty, and it doesn't badmouth it. What it does is it wants physical beauty, external beauty, to put in its proper context to internal beauty. And that's what this passage does. So let your adorning be hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Why is it imperishable? Because it doesn't go away. Physical beauty? You get... It goes away. It, I mean, you live about 28, 29, 30 years, and then you start to die. I mean, the, the process of death begins. It, I, I'm, I, I'm serious on this. It's like you live and you grow and you mature. You hit 28, 29, 30, and you die for 40, 50 years. It's just, um, you know it because... You know, like, especially, like, I remember dudes. You remember, like, when you were 20, you'd play stupid games with dudes. Like, you're like, we're just going to punch each other and, like, see how hard we can hit each other. Like, hey, I bet you can't knock me out with one punch. To the f and then, like, you'd get up the next day and do it again. And then you hit the death cycle. And you make a sudden movement because you get startled. And then the next day, got a cramp, man. Cramp, man. And you don't heal either. You remember if you got hurt when you were 20? You're like, walk it off. It'll be okay tomorrow. If you sprain your ankle and you're 40, 
you're going to have a sprained ankle for the next 40 years of your life. It'll, <laughs> it'll never be the same. No, I'm serious. It'll never be the same. Some of you got hurt and it's like it healed mostly, but it's never been the same. It's never been the same. So there's an internal beauty that the Bible is saying is, is greater than just mere external beauty. Okay, now for the, the best, best, and verse, best and worst verse of 1 Peter. Oh, man. This one's... For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now this is where it's like, are you serious? Like, if you want to be a good Christian wife... Be like Sarah, and remember that Sarah called Abraham Lord. And so this is where, like, the, the man who wants to, to twist this stuff is like, yeah, submit and call me Lord. Babe. No more hun or babe. I don't like that stuff. I am Lord of the house. It's like you don't understand what Peter's doing here. Peter's doing something brilliant. This is genius what he's doing. This is what the biblical authors always do. They always are, are subverting something that they're trying to change. Because if you ever try to change something explicitly, especially something that's dominant in a culture, you get immediate rejection. You almost have to come in and sneak into it and change it from the inside out. So, Abraham and Sarah, people from the Old Testament, they're married. Now, you immediately think, oh, Abraham's such a good, righteous dude, and so, of course, Sarah is going to call him Lord and respect him in that ancient culture. And that's what Peter's trying to say. It's, no, no, no. Abraham is called the father of the faith, but it's like David is a man after God's own heart. How much did they end up sinning in the midst of their relationship with God? It's like Abraham, David, it's like David just like left and right. Oh my gosh, I can't believe the evil that's going on. And then particularly with Abraham, when we're first introduced to him, like first couple pages of our introduction to Abraham, what does he do? What's going on? There's a famine and he leaves the area he should be, and he goes to Egypt. It's bad. Don't want to be in Egypt if you're Abraham. It means you're not being faithful. But then Abraham goes, oh, my wife Sarah, she's so beautiful that the Egyptians are going to want to take her as a wife. And so they're going to kill me as her husband in order to marry her. And so what does he do? Well, I'm a man of God. I'll protect my wife till my dying breath. No. He goes, hey, Sarah, you're like, you're really beautiful and stuff, so people are going to want to hurt me, so can you just tell them I'm your brother? And then, you know, you can, whatever happens between you and them, that's all good, but I don't want to die. How many times does he do that? Twice. And his kid does it. And so what is Peter doing? Remember the context. There is a unbelieving woman, a believing woman, who's married to an unbelieving man, and she ought to suffer and sacrifice and live in such a way that she could ultimately win her husband over for Christ. So what does Peter do? He brings up an example from the Old Testament where the man was acting foolish, and Sarah suffered and sacrificed, and ultimately her suffering led to the saving of his life. Now, why does Peter want us to think about categories that are talking about a spouse suffering and sacrificing in a way that ultimately leads to the saving of a life? The immediate context in the earthly marriage 
But there's also a spiritual reality to this as well. There is another spouse who will suffer and to sacrifice in order that he might save. And so all these layers are going on in the text. But you have to let the Bible speak for itself. You don't want to just import your modern understanding of things onto the ancient document. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, two things I want to talk about here. First, weaker vessel. What's going on there? And then two... What is this command for husbands to, to honor and to understand their, their wives all about? Now, before we get there, though, quick question. Why, does, why is the command to the husband not like, oh, and husbands who are married to an unbelieving woman? Because that didn't exist. If a man became a Christian and he was married to a pagan wife, the pagan wife, by pagan standards, would worship the God of her husband. And so the command to the husband is just, you honor the wife. Greek word for honor here is the same as honor the emperor. So just like guys don't go getting too, too much off the call me Lord, ladies don't say it's, I'm the emperor, you know, I'm empress here. But for the woman in the pagan society, you would just worship Jesus. And so the command to the man is honor. So we're going to get to the command to the man in a moment. But first, I want to deal with this, this phrase, weaker vessel. Now, this is where for some of you in the room, everything I'm about to say is going to be like, no kidding. No, everyone knows this. Everyone agrees with this. Everyone knows that. And there's some of you who it may make your blood boil. There's some of you who may not be open to this for a number of reasons, past hurts, past pains, or... Your demographics, if, if you're on the young side of things, you've been, you've been educated in a way that's going to want to push back to this. But the whole of the ancient world and the whole of the modern world up until relatively recent times in particular places, particular places, has believed that women are the physically weaker vessel. The physic now, that's not universal. There are some women that can knock dudes out. That's not universal. <laughs> My wife's strong. She's tough. She can knock some dudes out. But in general, the Bible assumes that women are the weaker vessel physically. It's the vessel's the body. Now, culture is telling us a narrative right now. And we don't have time to get in why, what's the motivation, but it's actually one of the things I'm most concerned about is culture is, is telling us a narrative that says any differences between men and women are merely socially constructed. They're cultural constructs. And what I mean by that, or what they mean by that, is the differences that you see between men and women aren't there because of biology or sex, but because culture has taught them to behave in certain ways. And that's certainly true a lot of times. There are ways that girls behave and guys behave because of culture. That's obviously true. That's 100% true. But the question is, are there things that are driven biologically, that by nature differentiate men and women? So take something like this. This, will, this would be a very controversial statement to say. Again, for some of you, it's not controversial at all. For some of you, it's going to be like, I'm going to show him a woman that can knock out a dude right, right now. <laughs> so we might say in our culture, women are generally drawn to professions like nursing. 
and men are generally drawn to professions like construction work. Okay, so for some of you, that's like, yeah, that's obvious. For some of you, you might say, yeah, but that's because culture has taught those things to them. If culture didn't teach those things, you'd have equal representation in construction work and nursing. And, and some of you might be radically opposed, opposed to that. Um, and by the way, if you're, if you're a man who's attracted to a career in nursing, it doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. Just like if you're a woman wanting to be a construction worker, it doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. We're talking about generally speaking, are there differences that appear generally between sexes? And so that statement 20 years ago, everyone would assume, oh yeah, 20, 30 years ago, yeah, girls like nursing and, and guys like construction work, no big deal, move on. What's the pushback now is that there's an agenda, an ideology that wants to deconstruct gender as a whole so that gender and sexuality are not objective realities, but they're merely given to us by our culture. And so they would say, no, that's wrong. In fact, the fact that there's more women in the nursing field says that there has to be some type of indoctrination going on socially or culturally that's pushing people this way and pushing people this way. And what the Bible assumes is that no, there's just major differences between men and women. And those major differences manifest themselves in culture in different ways. So women have a physically weaker vessel, the body's weaker. That until relatively recent time was not controversial, but it's controversial for me to say that right now. Maybe not among you or everyone, but it is. I can tell you I've read countless articles and watched dozens of videos all talking about this. But the fact is, men have more testosterone in their body, so by nature we are more aggressive and competitive. We have more naturally occurring steroids, which means we recover stamina faster. We have a higher hemoglobin count in our blood, which means oxygen circulates better in our body. Our muscle mass is bigger, our tendons are thicker, and our bone density is greater, which means we run faster, jump farther, and punch harder. We punch harder across the board. Do some women hit harder than men? Yes, but not always. For the most part, no. Now, there's a reason for that, and it isn't all good. Meaning men are physically stronger does not mean they're better or they get a better life. In fact, sometimes it means the opposite. Because of these things, men are more likely to be violent testosterone produces more aggression. So our prisons are filled with whom? Men. Who attempts suicide and actually succeeds more? Men. Who occupies the worst, most terrible, horrible jobs on planet Earth? Mostly men. Who die in the wars the most? Men. And there's a whole host of ways that being physically stronger makes men suffer. And there's a whole host of ways being physically weaker makes women suffer. And women, you know that. Being physically weaker, there's, there's things you don't get to do. You have to worry walking home at night by yourself. There's things, there's consequences to that. But those are natural applications of something that's biologically true. The biblical term for these differences, well, it's not really a biblical term, it's a theological term for these differences, is called complementarianism. And there's all kinds of different discussions about what does that look like in the church, and we're not getting into that. But the word, I want you to know the word, because at its core, it's just saying the genders are meant to complement each other. There are things that men are generally better at than women, and things that women are generally better at 
than men, vice versa. And so where I am strong, my wife may be weak. Where I am weak, my wife may be strong. We complement each other. And this pattern appears on the first pages of the Bible. This is, by the way, why I think there's a war on, on this. On the first pages of the Bible, you get a, a harmony and an order to creation. You get God creating heaven, earth, day, night, land, sea, male, female, both made in the image of God equal, but functionally different in their equality. They have different characteristics that complement each other. There's a reason why the ideologies want to deconstruct that narrative. But it's not just physical. So it's not just like, okay, women are the physically weaker vessel and guys are stronger, so let's move on. Like, no, there's, there's real differences, not just on the kind of testosterone level or the physical level, but we're talking on the neurological level. So one of the things that people would say, remember that thing that I said about um, nursing and construction workers? They would say that's all social construction. There's nothing else besides, besides that. And the answer to that is, is not really. There's neurological, chemical, biological reasons why people might be attracted to that. So the research has been done on very young children, including babies, and the research has been done on animals. So, so be, you can't have a social construction teaching the male baby monkeys to behave a certain way because of some type of cultural bias. So what we've seen in young children, babies, and you see this in monkeys, is that male monkeys will prefer a toy that's hard and has something that you could rotate or pull. So there's some dimensionality to it that you could rotate and do stuff with, okay? The female monkeys at an early age will prefer a toy that is soft, that has some type of plush, nice material on it. Just prefer that. Now, why? Probably has to do with testosterone. Because a male baby, human and monkey, in the womb, so before social or culture has any dynamics at play, in the womb, the boy gets hit with testosterone doses. And what that does, and this is what we've, people have observed in young, young children, is that a female child can engage with a human face longer than a male child. So a female child, a female baby, if you smile and, you know, goo-goo-gaga stuff, they'll engage with that longer than their male counterparts. Their male counterparts lose, a, lose their attention on a face smiling at them quicker than their female counterparts, but they'll pay attention to movement better see the movement better. And so you're going, oh, okay. So are those things that are rooted in biology and neurology down at that core level, do you think that if you grow up, they might have actual real manifestations in the real world? And the answer is yes, and thank God they do. Because God has made men and fem man and woman to complement each other in our relationships. And it again, hear me on this. It's not universal. There's some of you men, and it's not an attack on your masculinity or anything, who are going to be attracted to stereotypical female professions. That's fine, great. They need, they need your brain in there. And, and vice versa, there's going to be women who are attracted to the other. But in general, you have these things established by God, and one of those areas that Peter's concerned about is this physically weaker vessel. But it goes even further than that. So, like, women outperform men 
in pretty much all measurements of verbal activity or skill. The only area that men do better than women in forms of verbal communication is communicating abstract verbal analogy. Outside of that, women just beat men in communication across the board. And here's where it gets weird from here on out, is some of this information is offensive to some, and some of you who have been married a long time are going to find it humorous because everything I'm going to say you personally experience. So let's go to memory. And we don't know why exactly, but most researchers believe that a woman processes memory more through the left uh, amygdala than the right, and because of that, it stores the memory differently. But women have better long-term memory. Okay? I know some of you men are offended at that. It's offense to your manhood. No, women have better long-term memory. But it's not just the long-term memory. It's the way in which that memory is stored in the woman's brain. So a man might remember something, but he stores it generally like a file in a, in a computer. It's like, this happened 10 years ago, and this is what happened, okay? Let's say the woman remembers that, that same exact memory. So right now, they're pretty good, and it's, it's already kind of not true because the dude probably forgot about that thing 10, 10 years ago. But let's say he's remembering it. The woman's brain because probably the amygdala on the left is processing it differently, stores that memory in such a way that the whole three-dimensionality of that memory can be brought into the present. What I mean by that is this. He remembers, in 1985, this happened. Women typically will tell you what happened and can tell you also the color of the walls of the memory, the painting on the walls they can tell you the smell in the room and they remember the smell forever. It's crazy. And it's a way in which the memory is stored, the past can be brought into the present like with the reality that the male brain is not just experiencing. Now think about how this plays out in marriage. Let's say you're arguing about something that happened 15 years ago and it's 15 years ago and the dude is just like, get over it. We've argued about this five times. We've resolved it and we solved it. I don't know what's wrong with you. And you know, the, 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 the kind of expression is that you're weak. What's wrong? You're just so emotional. You just need to get over it. It's, it's like seen as a weakness. What actually is occurring is that woman is not weak. Her brain actually stored that in a way that's far more powerful than the way it was stored in your brain. So when you caused pain 15 years ago, she doesn't just remember it as an event 15 years ago. The whole 3D reality of it and the smell and every factor that was in the past, that pain is brought forward into the present in a way in which a man just won't feel. That alone should give you a clue on marriage dynamics. And that's down to how the brain is processing memories. Men typically do better with visuospatial uh, task. So it's like a guy in general can picture a complex object and picture uh, himself rotating it, nailing things into it, constructing in such a way to get an end goal. It's like, you know, some of you, you do it, you, you got a project in your mind and you've mapped out all the task of this three-dimensional object. Now, again, that's general because I'm horrible at that. I, I really am. Like, I can't, I'm just miserable at that. I can do abstract thought, 
but if it's abstract thought that actually has like, then turns into concrete mechanical parts, I'm, I'm, I'm a bum, just horrible at it. So men are better with those types of tasks, um, but women clearly outperform them in the verbal and the memory. Navigation. Men and women situate themselves and coordinate direction differently. And for some, you work at a place where that statement is sexist. For some of you, you've been married so long that it's like, it's laughable. So let me show you how this plays out. Women use landmarks for the most part, and men use a thing called dead reckoning. And by the way, this just isn't shown in humans. Female and male rats do the same behavior. Females will tend to use landmarks, and men will, men rats, male rats will tend to use dead reckoning. So what's the difference? Uh, landmarks works like this. Hun, do you know where we're going? Uh, yes. Okay, what's my next step? There's a, there's a giant, beautiful oak tree up the road, and then we're going to turn there. You turn when you see the oak tree. And the guy goes, well, how far up the road is it? I don't know, but when I see the oak tree, I'll know. Well, do I turn left or right? I need to get in the right lane. I don't know which way to turn, but when I see it, I'll know which way to turn. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Because that landmark, and she remembers seeing it, she remembers the cell, the colors, everything that was around there, and she knows, okay, I turn left. Men will typically use dead reckoning, where they want to try and estimate and calculate distance and angles. So that's why you ever heard, like, a, a guy who's really good at this? It's crazy. You ask for directions, and you go, okay, you're going to go up about 1.2 miles up to Union, and you take a sharp left. It's a sharp left. You've got to remember that, because your second turn is going to be going right. You're going to be heading north. And it's not a sharp turn. It's more like a, like a curtain. It's like, what? <laughs> we have these differences between men and women because they're reflected in creation. God created us equal but different to complement each other. Where one is strong, the other is weak. Now, I want to give a word coming out of this to men. Because remember, I wanted to talk about what weaker vessel meant. It meant your body is physically not as strong as your equal male counterpart. And so one, don't think of that as inferior. In fact, just because something's more easily broken and more fragile doesn't mean it's less valuable. In fact, most of the time when something is more easily broken or more precious or rare, what's more valuable, the hammer or all the expensive dishes you have in the cupboard? So it doesn't necessarily communicate value. But women's vessel, their body is physically weaker. And so what's the word for men out of this? You have been given by God himself a role, job, vocation, and responsibility to protect women and also children by extension because their bodies are weaker vessels. You as a man has, have been given the job and responsibility to protect, honor, and nurture women and children. It's a God-given job. Now, what happens when men neglect that job is women and children are the first to suffer, always. 
Men don't suffer when men don't do their job. Women and children are the first to suffer. What we're seeing in our culture and society is an attempt to obliterate those distinctions, an attempt to say that all of this is just social, socially constructed, therefore we should all behave the same. Now hear me on this. If men and women just behave the same, in other words, they're not just equal, they're identical, again, the first people to suffer will not be the men, the women and children will be. You try to flatten out those differences, the first ones to suffer will be women. Why? Because your men will start treating your women like men. And then subsequently, your women, in order to survive such a barbaric culture, your women will start behaving like men because it's the only way they know how to survive. And like it or not, you flatten out the differences. Women and children are the first to suffer. And so men, you're meant to protect. God has given you a physically stronger body. There's a thousand ways that manifests, some serious, some humorous. Here's a humorous one. Burglar breaks into your house. It's late at night. You're both sleeping. Man wakes up. Oh, I heard something. Someone's breaking the house. Hun, you take this one. I got the last one. <laughs> you don't do that. You don't split the differences. Like, well, that's a, that's a, that's a gender, that's a stereotypical g- traditional gender role that the dude goes and checks to see if there's a burglar in the house. Yes, that's a stereotypical gender role because it's rooted in our biology and neurology and God designed men to have a physically stronger body to be the first line of defense. And when men and when fell at that, women and children suffer. Again, it doesn't mean in all situations you can have, let's say there's a couple and the man is injured and he can't walk. And so the girl's the battle-hardened Sarah Connor Terminator 2 person in the relationship because the husband is, is in a physically debilitating situation. That's not a knock on his masculinity or a knock on her femininity. It means you've adjusted to the circumstance. But just because there's exceptions to the rule doesn't mean that those exceptions should then be made normative. They're exceptions, and those are great exceptions. So if you're in one of those exceptions and you're doing your best, good for you. God bless that. But you don't change the whole system because of an exception. And so, men, here's my word for you. I am an incredibly fallen, broken human being. Whatever holiness or righteousness or good ethical behavior I might display, it is just insignificant compared to the holy righteousness of God. Okay? So God's righteousness, His holiness, His justice, way stronger than anything I could come up with. You hurt my daughter, there'll be hell to pay. You hurt my wife, they'll be hell to pay. I've got two small sons, you hurt them, they'll be hell to pay. And whatever sense of justice I have, whatever love I have, it doesn't look anything like the holiness or righteousness of a just God. So men, if you're married, if you have kids, God has given you the responsibility to protect and to nurture those women and children. And if you think earthly vengeance looks bad, I need to remind you that God himself says, vengeance is mine. Do not fear the one who could just destroy body, but fear the one who could destroy both body and spirit in hell. So you are, if you are not 
participating in your God-given responsibility to protect women and children. You are harming in women and children. There might be hell to pay, and I mean that literally. I mean it literally. Now, the good news is God is holy and righteous, but he's also forgiving. So you may be failing miserably in your role, but today's the day to repent. Today's the day to be the father or the husband or the grandfather you're supposed to be. You repent, and luckily God's mercy isn't like mine or any other human male in the room because most of us, by nature, don't want to forgive someone who's hurt our family. But the good heavenly father is willing. So the day of the Lord and the day of repentance is today. Passages are difficult when you try to make it practical from this point because everyone's in a completely different situation, right? All of our marriages look different. All of our backgrounds look differently. There's single people in the room. There's people who are widowed. There's people who are divorced. There's people who have good marriages. There are people who have miserable marriages. And so there's a temptation to, to say, okay, now here's the practical steps to, make, to, to, to work on stuff. And there are some practical universal rules that could probably help all of us. But for the most part, you in your particular situation, through prayer, discernment, and community, talking with others, praying with others, being in a small group, need to work out the steps you need to do to, to be the man or the woman that God is calling you to be to work on your marriage. It's not simple. We have tons of wise people, good godly saints in this church who would love to help you in that. And so maybe the first steps for you is just say, I'm going to start talking to someone about it. I'm going to join a small group and talk about it. Something as simple as I'm going to fill out a connect card and say, hey, can one of the pastors re reach out to me? One word on submission as well. Um, if you are in an abusive relationship, physically, emotionally, um, submission does not mean to continue to go on in that situation. These verses are, again, they're always abused and misused. Peter's not saying put up with abuse. There's ways that you can deal with that in a Christian, godly manner. So reach out, don't keep that secret. Gotta get that stuff out there. If you're a man who's doing any of that stuff, I'm serious, there might be hell to pay. There might be hell to pay. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know why the Bible says that? Because you might need the fear of God because of the way you're behaving. It's the beginning of all wisdom is knowing your place before the Almighty God. All of this comes back to the gospel as everything does. And we're going to pass out communion. We're going to close with the song. All of this is, comes back to the gospel. And here's why. Earthly marriage is meant to mirror the heavenly reality. So men and women coming together in love and matrimony is meant to mirror the marriage of Christ and his church. All throughout the scriptures, the marriage that's talked about most is not earthly marriage, but the marriage of God and his people, Christ and his church. And so the way we do earthly marriage is meant to point to the gospel. The apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this first part, verse 31, he's quoting Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. That's talking about sex. Men, women, they come together, one flesh, sex. And then he says, this union, this marriage, it's mysterious, but I want you to know that it's referring to Christ and the church. In other words, earthly marriage is an institution embedded in the created order to point us to the gospel, where the true husband pours himself out for his bride lovingly and sacrificially, and the church, his bride, serves and follows him and wants to serve and love him all the days of her life. And it's like this endless cycle of outpouring love and sacrifice. And Lord, we love you, we follow you, we serve you. And in that image of the gospel, earthly marriage, the institution, it is embedded in the created order so that when men and women love each other right, you should be able to glimpse the love of God. And that's our goal for the marriages at this church. And I know there's some of you who you're going, my, I, I, my marriage reflect the gospel. I'm just trying to hold on to this little bit I got. There's hard hearts in the room and people who don't want to forgive. And some of you are married to people that aren't worthy of respect, really. But what the Bible would tell us is to the best of your ability, have your marriage try and point to the gospel. Point to the gospel. And our prayer is that all of the marriages would ultimately be living, walking, breathing pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. Maybe today's one of the days you take a first step. Sign up to get involved with something going on with, with marriage ministry. Confess, get in a small group, tell, tell a friend. It's all different for every single person. For some of you today, for men, it might be the day you need to repent from your wickedness because the day of the Lord is today. For some of you women, it might be the day you need to repent from your wickedness. For some of you, it might be the day both people, man and woman, husband and wife, need to own up to the fact that they both created the mesh that you're in. It's different for everybody, but all of us are striving to mirror the gospel. And the last word for singles, if you're not married, you're widowed, divorced, you are essentially bypassing the earthly institution and going straight to the heavenly. You are saying the earthly embodiment and picture of the heavenly marriage, I am not in, and I am going straight to the heavenly marriage. So it's not a weakness, it's not a, not a, not a fault or something to be ashamed of. Paul the apostle says, better not to marry, but he also knows like most people can't do that. So he says marriage is good, but if you could just focus on the things of the Lord like me, the better. So God might have you exactly where he wants you. Let's stand as we take communion and close with, a, with singing to our king. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for his bride, for my bride. took the cup and said, this is my blood. You're supposed to do this and proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so Jesus, as your bride, we pledge our allegiance to proclaim your death and resurrection until you return again.
giving all I am to seek your face. Lord, all I am is yours. My whole life I place in your hands. God of mercy, humbled I bow down. In your presence at your throne. And I call, you answer, and you came to my rescue, and I want to be where you today, if you're in a 
place where you don't feel loved by your spouse, you're single, you're divorced, you're widowed. The true heavenly spouse loves you more than you can ever know, knows what it's like to suffer patiently, to suffer graciously. So you are more loved than you can ever fathom. You are more loved than you can ever understand. And even if everyone else in this world is unfaithful to you, he is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. Go with your king. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.